This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. back and we're back live. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, except for days that the studio is closed because of vacations, we're here every weekday at four o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. That's why we're called the word to stand on for life. We want to give you something solid to stand upon as we finish uh, another year, uh, as we head into a new year as Christians. I want everybody in this listening audience, starting with me right now, I want everybody to focus on making 2018 your most Jesus year ever. I trust that you had a great Christmas. We did here at Calvary Chapel. Um, we, we had a, an interesting weekend. I haven't been on the air since last Friday, so uh, I told you that we were gonna. We had a surprise at our Friday night service. I had the privilege and honor of remarrying a couple that had been divorced, a young couple that had been divorced for a little over a year, and it was just sort of a miraculous thing to watch as the Lord knit their hearts back together, first and foremost, reconciliation with Him, and then God did the work, and uh, what a thrill it was to, to be able to stand before uh, a, a church body Friday night and and let them look and see what what work the Lord has done and oh I was thrilled uh, the highlight of, of the wedding obviously the highlight of course is two people getting right with God and getting right with one another saying I'm sorry and I'm wrong it's amazing what God can do when we simply will say I'm sorry Lord I was wrong when we do that he's free to do anything but the best thing about this wedding was that God was answering the prayers of two kids. We have a third grader here in our school who uh, has been sad for a long time. And yet now he was, as he's been praying, he's, he's heard the Lord answer his prayers. A five-year-old, a kindergartner, who um, uh, was the maid of honor, had the maid of honor, who was the kindergartner, the best man was the third grader. And um, the little girl had her a smile on her face the whole time. And the little boy was so happy, but he couldn't stop from crying. And it was just so precious, so beautiful. Uh, and uh, it's just, that's the kind of thing you get to see if you are hanging around the Lord, if you're hanging around his people, that's the kind of thing that you get to see. So uh, it was a great weekend for us. Our Christmas Eve services, we were crowded and it was fun and uh, we got to talk about the story that everybody seems to know, but we don't hear often enough. Uh, and as I said, I pray that you had a wonderful Christmas. Jesus was the guest of honor. And uh, I challenged my church, and I'll challenge this audience now. Um, I hope and pray that you gave Jesus the only present he really wants and needs. And that's the gift of your heart. All of it, not some of it, not most of it, 
but all of it. If you'll do that, I promise you 2018 will be a great year. Uh, tonight, because it's Wednesday night here at Calvary Chapel, we have uh, our Old Testament Bible study tonight for Samuel chapter 30. We're going to get into the verse, six verses of chapter 31 tonight where Saul dies. It's the end of his reign uh, as king, end of his life here on earth. Uh, I think it's a very instructive Bible study. Uh, we see David at his best, and we see well, the consequences of Saul's decisions to walk away from God. Uh, you can watch it tonight at calvarysa.com uh, at 7 o'clock. Uh, if you're out and around, you don't have anything else to do tonight, why don't you stop by and uh, help us warm up the sanctuary with your body temperature? Um, we'd love to. We'd love to do that. I think this is a, a, a really worthwhile Bible study tonight. Uh, tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the show. I have to keep reminding myself that because this does not feel like Wednesday to me. But she will be live in studio with me tomorrow. One more thing, and I want to. I, I want to say this nicely. I don't want anybody to think that I'm complaining, but I. I, I do want to say because I want you to be praying. Those of you who've been praying for winter, I hope you're satisfied. <laughs> it is so cold, I don't know what to do. Well, here's our phone numbers. We love your live calls and questions. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, and um, you will be able to uh, to see, uh, we'll be able to receive your questions from that as well. Okay, here's our first question, anonymous from our email inbox. And the question is, why would we trust something as confusing as the Bible that it's God's Word. Well, Anonymous, it's not confusing. It really isn't confusing. Uh, it, it's very straightforward. Now, there are things about it that can be confusing, but I think the way we understand that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand it by reading it. And most people, and since I don't know who you are, you can't take this personally, but I think most people think it's confusing because they don't actually read it. The Bible's really straightforward. Let me just give you one example. Flee from sexual immorality. There's nothing confusing about that. It only gets confusing when we don't want to flee from sexual immorality. Be gentle. Be humble. If we are gentle and humble, there's nothing confusing about that. It's when we don't want to be gentle. It's when we don't want to forgive is another example. That's when things get confusing. Now, here's the key, Anonymous, and I hope you'll take this to heart. If you will be obedient, if you'll make it your purpose, your, your, your practice to open the Bible and read it systematically, not just wherever it opens kind of thing, but read it systematically. Just read it a little bit every day. And if you will do the things that are clear to you, I promise you the confusion will diminish. The more obedient you are with what you know is true, the less confusing what you don't understand will be because the Holy Spirit will shine more light on it. So it's not confusing. Um, I think if we would understand that, if we would approach it with a heart to be obedient, 
I think we'd find that just as the psalmist write, that you, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I'm one of those people because I don't see well, but it, but even before I didn't see well, I just never liked darkness. To stumble around in the darkness is, is a dangerous thing. And um, the Bible lights our path up in this dark world. And you know how it is when you were the first time all alone in a really, really dark place. And I mean physically dark. How uneasy you felt. And then the moment somebody came with headlights or a flashlight or, or just something that sort of illuminated the way, how much relief you, you experienced. Well, that's what the Bible's like, Anonymous. Turn to the Lord. Ask Him by the Spirit. Ask Him to shed light on it. One more thing, and this is the most important thing. Anonymous, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. God's Word is written and it's interpreted by the Spirit of God. But if you don't have the Spirit, Jesus said you're none of His. You know, knowing about Jesus isn't enough. You have to know Him. And the only way that we've ever been able to know Jesus, you know, short of those who walked with Him on this earth, the twelve disciples who became apostles, the only way to know who He is is in the Bible. So look at the Bible. Look for Jesus. Understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament is all and only about Him. And I trust that confusion will start to eliminate. The other thing that you have to do, and this is uh, just one of those things where we've got to resolve in our own hearts to do it. You've got to decide once and for all, once and for all, whether or not it is God's Word or it's just a book. Challenge yourself, but, but find out the answers. I'll share this again because it's important, but I've shared it many times in response to similar questions, Anonymous. When I got saved, I'm a logical person. I had lots of questions. I asked everybody the questions that came to mind, and everybody that answered the questions started off by saying, well, the Bible says, and it didn't make any sense to me that the Bible could be written by men and written by God. It made no sense at all. And yet, since that was the answer that everybody gave me, the logical conclusion, <clears throat> at least for me personally, excuse me, at least for me personally, was to find out. And I made it my mission in life. I was saved maybe eight, nine, ten months. I made it my mission in life to study to find out if this was really God's Word, if it was just a book. And when I found out, when I was convinced, it took me about two and a half months, that, that whole process. I know for some people it takes longer. For some people, uh, Paula just believed it. I mean, she just, she believed she was given a greater gift of faith than I was. She just believed it. Well, I had to find out. And I remember after about two and a half months, it was as though Jesus was sitting in that room. I was in a library at a school of theology, really struggling with these things. I had the table covered in books. 
and there was a moment when it was as though, nothing weird happened, but it was as though Jesus was sitting at that table with me. And he looked at me and he said, are you convinced yet? And I had to admit I truly was. And anonymous and for everybody else who has struggles with the Bible. It was at that moment that I knew and never questioned again whether or not this was his word. And because of that, I've never been without answers. I've never been in a situation where I doubted my salvation not one time in my entire nearly 27 years walking with Jesus. If I ever doubted that I belonged to him. And that's the kind of certainty, the object certainty that we all need. So Anonymous, I hope that gives you a little bit of direction in answering your question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Rich from our mobile app. Uh, what advice would you give someone who is struggling with depression? Rich, I would say stop spending time with yourself. And I know this is a third person question, so I'm not assuming it's you. Uh, I'd say start, stop spending time with you and start spending time with Jesus. Truth is, the more time you spend with you, the more time I spend with me, the more miserable I become. I'm not very good company. Jesus, on the other hand, is the best company of all. David writes, in his presence is the fullness of joy. Now, that doesn't discount the possibility of problems and difficulties. We all have them. This world that we live in can be very, very painful. But even in the pain, even in the difficulties, the trials of life, I have a question later about suffering. Even then, Jesus, his nearness to you in his presence is the fullness of joy. It doesn't mean your problems are going to go away. It doesn't mean you're suddenly going to start telling jokes and be happy. The life of the party. What it means is that when he's there with you, even in the most difficult of times, your joy will return. But you have to do it by turning to him and turning away from you. Jesus said to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Uh, I'll add something to it. To be his disciple, you need to get over yourself. So that's the spiritual answer. Let me give you a practical answer, Rich. This person that you're talking about, I would go to them and tell them, and I've heard Paula say this to uh, ladies in our church for years and years and years. She would say to them, um, they're calling from bed, they don't want to get up, they're so depressed. Paula would say, get up, take a shower, get ready, put on some clothes, I'm going to call you back and make sure you're dressed, and then we'll go to the next step. you got to get in the game. The more we stay stationary, Satan likes a sitting target. So the more we stay stationary, the more prone we are to being even more discouraged and depressed. When you get up and start moving, get a shower, get dressed, then let's go to step two. What's step two? Talk to Jesus. Talk to him. doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. It's discipline. You know, uh, and we've said this before, uh, Paul and I go to the gym. Today, it was like 40 below zero. It was really, really dark outside. And I didn't want to get up. Now, Paula would have got up in an instant, but I'm not that motivated. I didn't want to get up. 
But you see, this is the decision that Paul and I have made. We're not going to talk ourselves out of going to the gym. It's part of what we have to do to stay healthy enough to serve the Lord. So we got up and we went. And it was horrible until we got there and got started. Next thing you know, we're done. Well, being depressed is nothing more than that decision. I've got to get up. I've got to find Jesus. I've got to talk to him. Let him speak to me in his word. Go to church. A depressed person should never miss. It's just part of the discipline. It's part of of fighting back. And see, that's what we've got to understand. When we're depressed, I've taught here at our church at Calvary Chapel that that depression is one of Satan's nuclear weapons. That's why we've got to go do what we don't feel like doing. We've got to get up. We've got to go to church. There's something about being with God's people, something about praising the Lord in worship, and then hearing the life-giving Word of God being taught. And then you hold on to what you heard. But it's a battle, Rich, and... We have to learn to fight. We have to be tough. Unless we are, the enemy is going to pound. He is relentless. He is without mercy. He will pound away. Rich, I hope that helps. And tell whoever it is you're talking about that we will be praying. 340-9585. Here is Richard from our email inbox. Um, Pastor Ron, what is your opinion of Reformed theology? I've been looking at some of Dr. Uh, R.C. Sproul's teachings on YouTube and have found them enlightening. I hope you all had a blessed Christmas, Richard. We really did have a blessed Christmas. Thank you so much for asking. Now, please don't get mad at me when I tell you. Uh, I have a very, very low opinion of Reformed theology. I want to be very clear at the outset that it is orthodox within uh, the, the, the Christian faith. There is nothing heretical about it at all. But I have seen Reformed theology and Dr. Sproul, who just went home to be with the Lord. That's why all of his stuff is available now uh, on YouTube. When you open it up, it'll all be there. Uh, I've seen Reformed teaching destroy so many fruitful Christian lives that it's hard even to describe. Reformed theology appeals to our flesh. It seems to have nice little neat answers for everything. Um, God gets the blame for the bad stuff. Well, that's his will. Who can resist his will? And, And yet none of that does anything to make us feel better or more active in our faith. Reformed theology is God chooses some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And so what's the point in me sharing my faith? God knows who's going to go and who's not. Nothing I can do. God wants me to serve at church. He'll make me serve at church. It just destroys fruit. Even more than all of that, there's a sense of pride with Reformed theology. People actually feel, because they think they have the answers, they feel superior. And pride is never a good place for a fruitful Christian life. So my opinion of Reformed theology, as you would suspect, Richard, is not high at all. Uh, Dr. Sproul, who is a brilliant man, he was a Presbyterian, 
Um, he was an amillennialist, which makes no sense at all. Sometimes I say it's hard to be smart. He outsmarted himself reading the book of Revelation. Um, he, he just he, he just seemed to be no again. He's brilliant. He was a gifted teacher. Um, he's just teaching wrong stuff, stuff that's contrary to the nature of God. So I would avoid him altogether, unless Richard, you're very very grounded. I have been uh, uh, taught by R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur, and some others. Um, I think when they're not talking about election or or um, um, the eschatology for somebody like MacArthur and, and, and R.C. Uh, are different. Um, but, but I just think when you come to those conclusions, uh, and, and there seems to be this decided lack of love, there's an edge to Reformed theology. And the only appeal is that it sort of gives answers to the questions that we have a tendency to want answers to. But uh, I wouldn't recommend him at all as a Bible teacher. Again, I want to emphasize, I am not saying that those who are Reformed or Calvinists are heretics. Um, that is not the case at all. They're just really, really wrong and know very little about the nature and the character of God. So, uh, Richard, I hope that answers your question, and don't be angry with me. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, we've got about four minutes left in this part of the or this first half of the program. Here's a question from Evelyn. She wants to know how can I hear God clearly? Well, Evelyn, if you're talking about hearing God audibly, you can't. You're not going to. Uh, the people that say they've heard God's audible voice, uh, unless it's somebody in your Bibles uh, or somebody that God has appeared to in a vision or in a dream, um, that's just more charismatic nonsense. Uh, here is, I think, how you can hear God more clearly. Be obedient. Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask and be in his word. And when you are obedient to what's in his word, um, then you will also be, um, um, able to hear what the spirit is leading you to do. But there's an element of this element that I think is really important. You need to understand that element is that we have to learn to walk by faith. Blessed are you, Thomas, because you see and believe, but blessed in the context there is more blessed are those who believe and have not seen. I think we need to start learning to hear the voice of God. You know, when Paula calls me on the phone, I know instantly who it is. And I knew that even before her picture pops up on my phone now, but but, but her voice, I know how she, the name she calls me, I know the, 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 the joy in her voice. Uh, I can, I, I just know her. Um, but we had to work on that through relationship. The same thing is true with Jesus. You've got to work on the relationship. Pour your heart out to him. Let him pour out his heart on you. And you'll be able to hear that still small voice of God. Don't look for shortcuts. Sometimes we have a question or we have a problem. We want to hear God in, in a way that's going to give me an answer right now. We have to learn to be patient. But talk to him, and God will speak to your heart. Not only does he speak to us in his word, and that's always the primary way God speaks to us, but he also speaks to us, Evelyn, uh, as, as he speaks to our heart. We always have to 
test the spirits. That's what John says, because not every spirit is from God. And then we have to test the spirits against the Word of God to make sure what we've heard in our heart is consistent with what God's Word has already revealed. My final thought on this one, Evelyn, is this. I have heard more from those lying spirits, way more than I've heard from God when, when it was, I thought, God speaking to my heart. So don't depend on just your heart. Always check your heart out. But God will speak to you. He will lead you and guide you. And there will be those times that you know beyond any doubt that what you just heard is truly from the Lord. And then be obedient and he'll speak even more to you. But don't expect God to speak to you if you're not being obedient to what he's already declared. The one thing I know he's declared is in his word. If I'm not doing that, why would I expect that God is going to speak to me about something else through some other source? Walk with him, talk with him, open your Bible, really get to know him, and learn, Evelyn, that he's trustworthy. Learn that he's trustworthy. Nothing is more important than you learning, increasing your faith, that God does what he tells you he's going to do. Hope that answers your question. Hey, on this first program back um, after Christmas, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585, you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, we'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program i was talking to my producer during the break that we know you're not out jogging so since you're home probably sitting by a fireplace you might as well call 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from daryl uh, he says how would you respond to someone who says they like jesus but can't stand christians daryl uh, you'd be amazed at how many times i've received this question this is a person who wants to be tangentially connected to jesus with no commitment with no commitment. So I'm usually very, very direct with people like this. This is like somebody coming to me and saying, you know, Pastor Ron, I love you, your radio program or your preaching. Oh, I just love you, but your wife is ugly. That's what we're saying to Jesus with a question like this. Oh, Jesus, I like you, but you married an ugly woman. I don't want anything to do with her. Uh, who wouldn't be offended by that? Can you imagine trying to explain to Jesus why you hated his bride? And that's just how direct we have to be with people who say things like this. They're silly things. You know, uh, an unbeliever, Mahatma Gandhi, said, I'm quite fond of their Christ, but uh, my problem is with their Christians, speaking of the church. Um, I'm sure 
uh, he had difficult people in his life who weren't Christians as well. Don't blame Jesus for Christians. And remember that you might be the Lord's answer to that very question somebody else has by going to church and being like Jesus. So this is really important. It is impossible to separate Jesus from his wife. You know, I'm not prone to fight, but if somebody talks bad about Paul, I'm going to punch him. Well, imagine Jesus hearing a question like this. I would say to somebody, well, the minute you get born again, that would change. Again, they're looking for permission. People that think like this, they're looking for permission to be lazy spiritually at best, or at worst, just divorce themselves from any responsibility or accountability. And we can't do that. We don't have the right to do that. So, Daryl, be direct in love, but be very, very direct. I, I can't ever imagine standing before Jesus and explaining why I spoke such ugly things about his bride, um, his beautiful, beautiful bride. So I hope that makes some sense to you. Here is the question I talked about that we had about suffering. Jackie wants to know. Why must Christians suffer? Well, Jackie, the reason is because everybody suffers. We live in a fallen world, and uh, suffering is part of it. Um, if somebody tried to convince you that if you give your life to Jesus, you won't have to suffer, they lied to you. I mean, think about this. Jesus himself suffered like no other ever. Jesus said a Servant is not above his master. So, of course, Christians have to suffer. We're, we're not immune from suffering, just, just as though, happily, we're not immune from blessing. The fact that unbelievers get blessed in this world sometimes doesn't seem fair to those of us who are Christians, but Ecclesiastes says the sun rises and shines on the just and the unjust. So, Jackie, we suffer because we live in a world that's been bound over to suffering until Jesus returns and gives us a new one. I want you to think about suffering. If you look back in your life, and Jackie, I'm going to assume that you're a Christian. Look back in your life and, and honestly appraise whether or not you grew more through suffering than you did through times of blessing. If you're like 99.9% .9 of the rest of the world, the answer is, of course. Why? Because we had to stay close to Jesus. So God uses even suffering to accomplish his will, and he uses suffering to ensure that we who are his become more and more like him. Brothers, don't think it's strange that you suffer painful trials. James writes that. Peter writes that. In other words, this is the expected life for a believer. And our church culture in the West, we hardly suffer at all compared to others. But what we've got to do is we've got to understand that this is just the world that we live in. There's nothing at all that we can do. Jesus will help you grow. From our mobile app, this one is from Nacho. Uh, could you please help me understand Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes 10.19, uh, the point about money. 
He says, a feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Um, then he says, thank, thank you, Nacho, for the question. Um, Nacho, remember, these are poems, and we've got to understand what Solomon is doing. He is at the end of his life, and he's looking back on a life that's been squandered, wasted potential. Solomon started out so well, you can read Proverbs, and you see all of that that wisdom from God. No man ever had as much wisdom before or since as Solomon did. Uh, and, and yet he was trapped by this world. Married a thousand women, or, or that's not accurate. He had a thousand women in his life. As other women didn't bring him great joy. They stole the one love of his life from him. The time that he spent with other women was time that he lost, time that was stolen from him with the one woman who had his heart, the Shulamite maiden. And when we get to Ecclesiastes, Solomon, now old, is looking back and he's sort of summarizing his life. Nothing I withheld from myself. Uh, I, I explored knowledge, I explored power, I explored intellect, I explored having fun, giving myself over licentiousness. And Ecclesiastes is just sort of an overview of that journey. And so in Ecclesiastes 10, he's looking back and he's saying, this is the way of the world. The feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. But the whole book is followed by a not true, meaningless, vanity, vanity, the King James says. Meaningless, the chasing after the wind. So he's not saying these are the answers to life. These aren't things that, that we can sort of count on. But this is the way the world thinks. This is what caused Solomon's difficulty uh, in his life. Um, he's always looking for more. And being with God wasn't enough for him. Why? Because he allowed sin to tempt him. He allowed sin to overwhelm him. You know, with Jewish kings, they were only really forbidden to do two things. Don't multiply wives, don't multiply horses. If they multiplied wives, it was sin. If they multiplied horses, they were getting too full of themselves. Horses were a sign of power in the ancient world. And God wanted them to depend completely on him. And Solomon gets to the end of his life, and the one thing that he looks back on with deep, deep regret is this. Why did I waste all of that time when, in fact, I had everything I need? Everything apart from God is meaningless. Didn't say it didn't cause, didn't wasn't fun. Didn't say any of that. What it said was that there was no meaning, there was no joy, there was no. While there was happiness moments, there was no joy. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. From our mobile app, Javier just sent this in. Was Abram's bosom a literal place? It still is a literal place. It's just empty, Javier. Uh, Luke chapter 16, you can read about it. Uh, it's in the abyss, somewhere in the center of the earth. Um, the abuso is the word. It, it's, it's a place where there are two compartments. Uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story, not a parable. It's a story, a real story, about a rich man and a poor man who died on the same day. The rich man died and went to a place of torment. 
Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. The names are interchangeable. Uh, and um, um, and paradise is exactly as described. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So, uh, yes, they're literal places. Um, Abraham's bosom, because Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. Ephesians tells us, led captivity captive. Um, he emptied the paradise compartment and took them to heaven with him when he went to his father after his death and resurrection. Um, but Abraham's, uh, or the, the, the torment part of, of uh, the abyss, uh, is still occupied. That's where the souls of the dead, uh, who will be judged at the great white throne judgment following the millennial reign of Jesus on earth, that's where the souls of those people are being held in torment every day, uh, where there's weeping and, and gnashing of teeth, uh, where the the... the, the fire, uh, and not literal fire, that's poetic language, but where the, the fire never ceases to end, uh, just just an existence, um, a conscious existence, Luke 16 describes to us, uh, but an existence that is, is unbearable and impossible even to describe. So yes, it was a real place, it remains a real place today, um, the just one compartment is empty. And the, those who are in torment can see that compartment. They can see what they missed out on. And uh, because it's appointed on the man once to die and then face the judgment according to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, uh, they are simply awaiting their final judgment, which is when their bodies, their resurrected bodies, uh, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Here's a question from Randy. Uh, he says, why do you think more younger generation kids are leaving church, and what can we do to keep them? Uh, Randy, I've got some ideas, of course, but uh, there, there really isn't anything that we can do to keep them. Um, uh, you know, Jesus said, I have not lost any that you've given me. I think the problem that we have in the church is we think we raise our kids in church, we make them go to church, we make them go to to children's church and then to high school church and all the stops in between. Uh, We we have them baptized, we send them to retreats, and we think that automatically makes them Christians. It doesn't. Uh, The Holy Spirit has to touch their hearts. And and while, while real Christians may backslide, or they may fall into sin, they may fall away for a time, they always come back because Jesus said, I've lost none that you have given me. I, I think it's sort of a um, um, a false narrative to say that there's something we can do. It's so American. we got to do it ourselves. There's something we can do to stop this from happening. Um, it's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to model Jesus in the home, to model Jesus at church, to teach them about Jesus in church and in the home, and then to pray for them. But they've got to make their own choice. And nearly all of these kids that are leaving church and not coming back were never really saved. And I think if we're honest, we look at those kids, especially if there are kids, we'll say, well, I know they weren't saved. I just felt better convincing myself they were theirs. You know, the truth is, God's Word is enough. God's Word, if they'll pursue it with honesty and with passion, God will reveal 
himself to them. And if the Bible says he's a rewarder of those who seek him with diligence or earnestness, if they'll do that, then they will never leave. If they don't do it, that's not God's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not even the parents' fault. Every young man or woman has to grow up, wean themselves off their parents' faith, and make their own choice. It'd be so great if we could blame something on the church, but, but we can't. Now, here are a couple of other things I think that are important. One, uh, as I'm sure you know, Randy, we have uh, a divorce rate inside the church. I'm only speaking here in the West. We have a divorce rate inside the church that is equal to the divorce rate of unbelievers. Now, if a child is at home watching that, why would they want that Jesus? Ephesians says, fathers, do not embitter. Another translation says, do not exasperate your children. That's very embittering. It's exasperating. We tell them about Jesus. We drag them to church, but then we don't keep our promises. I will love you until death do us part. And we, we have serial divorce and remarriage. We have parents yelling horrible things at one another. The kids are hearing that. We like to convince ourselves, well, kids are young, they'll get over it. They don't. Repeating from the first half of the program, but I wish everybody in this audience could have seen the faces on those two kids, a third grader and a kindergartner, on the stage. Believe me, they didn't get over it. And when I looked at the third grader, his name is Troy, and I said, Troy, is this okay with you? He just broke out crying. He was so happy. And one of the things I said in that wedding was, and said directly to him, Troy, now you know. In third grade, now you know God answers prayers. And he looked at me with a big smile on his face, tears rang down his cheeks and just nodded his head. But is there any reason it's your fault, moms and dads, why your kids are leaving the faith? Your Jesus, is he worth having? Do they see your life transformed? Do they see joy in your life? If the answer to the questions are no, then why would they want your Jesus? There's another reason. Our children, um, and, and, and I don't mean to sound overreaching here, but our kids don't read anymore. They don't read. Their faces are buried in technology. I told Paula this morning when we went to the gym, it was so cold. I had to go into the sauna to sort of just warm up a little bit and stretch a little bit. And there was four other young people in that gym, in that sauna, and every one of them had their faces buried in their telephones. We use iPads as pacifiers for our little kids. We let them play games. We need to raise them in the Word. In the Word. And if we'll do that, then these kids will find Jesus for themselves. But believe me, nobody is a Christian because he or she was raised in a Christian home or because they went to youth group or because they went to retreats or because they were baptized. 
We become Jesus. That's when we're born again. And that's what these kids need. It's not an emotional decision, although there's often emotion attached to it. We have to understand that the university or the world of jobs is going to take away, they're going to try to steal their faith as soon as they get into it. At least when you get a job and that happens, they're paying you. We actually are paying the universities to steal our kids' faith. So those are the issues. Moms and dads need to have a Jesus that's real and attractive. And we'll lose less and less. Let's go to David calling from San Antonio. David, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, David. Boy, I tell you, you're you're a, you hit home with me today. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was for about nine years and um, served as a uh, children's minister also for another nine, and so mm-hmm. I've seen the whole gambit of things from children to youth. And and you're right, parents seem to think in church that, oh well, I'm going to leave them with you for an hour. Uh, do what you can because uh, you know they need they need God they need Jesus in their life and work your magic right and uh, mm-hmm. I remember I had a um, a parent night with uh, the youth youth parents once and uh, you know we had a light lunch and something like that and then I had a small sermon for them and and I told them I said you know it it's not up to me to save your child it, it's up to you to have Jesus in your home just exactly like you're saying. And I said, and, and ultimately, God God loves every one of them, and he's going to give them an opportunity. It, your child is no different than anybody else's. And this one lady came up to me and said, no, I, I can force my, my child to, to accept Jesus. And I said, no, you really can't. I said, I want you to think about Billy Graham and how many thousands and thousands of people he stood in front of and gave messages all over the world, and he couldn't save his own son. His own son had to come and realized who he was and that he needed a savior. He gave the gospel to so many people on altar calls, but he could never do that for his own son. His son had to come to that realization in his life and then come to Christ and say, I need a savior. But so if Billy Graham couldn't do it, you can't do it. I can't do it. We can only do the best <laughs> with the price of it, mm-hmm. like you say, and model that at home. You're exactly right. And, uh, and then let the Lord do what he's going to do with them because he's going to give them an opportunity. Um, if, if you would, would let me, I have a, a small story to tell you of the youth. Um, once okay. when I was uh, teaching, uh, I'm sorry? Uh, no, I said okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we had Bible classes with our youth, and I was at a small church on the southeast side, very rough part of town, and um, I had a small group of about 20 kids. And uh, this one girl would always sit in the back of the class, but, but she would listen. And um, after about a year's time, she came up, at, up to me after class and, and said, uh, Brother, I'm, I just wanted to tell you bye. I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. And I thought, well, she's moving. And she said, you know, this Jesus thing, it, I, I believe it, and, and I believe everything that the Bible says, and I, and I hear what you're saying in class, but it's just not for me. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I got it. I understand. And she looked at me kind of stunned, like, aren't you going to try to stop me or whatever, right? And I said, you know, there's going to be an opportunity. The Lord's going to come knocking at your door. And you already have enough seed planted in you to know when the Lord comes, you're going to have to make a decision. I said, but it's okay. If you don't get it now, you will. It'll come back to you. And she left. She left for about a month. And about a month and a half later, this 
girl walked into church, and this was a real small church of about 150 people. So anybody new to the church was easy to pick out. And mm-hmm. she came in dressed very, very sultry. And I thought, wow, who's that? You know, because it just wasn't the norm. And uh, it turns out it was her. And she came back and told me the story of, that she had met this guy, and he was being really, really great with her and buying her clothes, and she was having a wonderful time and so on. She was underage uh, also, I forgot to mention, to be leaving home, but she did. And um, and I told her, well, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're doing okay. I, I really wanted to put her in a corner and tell her how her life was just going out of whack, but I uh, thought that's not my business to do that. I just told her, you know, I said, remember I told you that the Lord would have a day for you and he's going to come and, and talk to you about you, and she said, yeah, I remember, and she chuckled, and she said, you know, but things are going really great. Well, we jump ahead another two months, and um, somebody, one of my youth comes up and says, there's a lady across the street that wants to talk to you. So I look out there and go across the street, and this, this lady looked pretty bad, like a, kind of like a um, homeless person. So I walked across the street, and I went over, and, and it turns out it was the same young girl, mm-hmm. and uh, very dirty, uh, smelly, just looked like life had beaten her up. And I said, you know, let's go over here and talk. So her and I went to the little playground area and sat there and talked. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, the guy that she was with wanted her to start doing uh, prostitution and wanted her to start selling drugs. So he started treating her real rough. And uh, she wound up living with some homeless people in a burned-out house, eating out of trash cans. And she got full of lice. And, you know, it was just a horrible story. And this was during the winter. And I told her, you know, I I need to take you home. And she said, no, my mom's not going to accept me back. And I said, she will. I said, your mom's going to take you back. And I said, by the way, has the Lord reached out to you yet? And she said, no. And so I took her home and um, got her to her house. And I said, let me let me walk you to the door. She said, no, that's okay. I'll do it. So she walked to her front porch and waved at me, and I drove off. I pulled over in a corner and just prayed for her and went home. Well, another 30 days went by, and I see the most beautiful young lady come into church. <laughs> glowing like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And I said, oh, my Thank gosh, you. look at you. And I said, just couldn't believe her. And I said, what's happened? And she said, you know, the day you left me at home, I was so nervous. I didn't think my mother would let me back in. And she said, I fell asleep on the porch. And she said, for some reason, and I, I think you and I know what, what it was, at 2 o'clock in the morning, her mother woke up, and something told her, go outside and look on the porch. Went out there, and she mm-hmm. saw her daughter, and she said it was just like the prodigal son. She just... Mm-hmm got showered with kisses and hugs and <laughs> crying and her mother dragged her in the house and told her go take a shower and made her dinner she ate dinner and thank went you. to bed she said you know David th- thank you we're, we're about we're about out of time now David thank you for sharing thank you for your heart to serve and and um, please please keep um, keep pass, passing the message thank you very very much you know in America only in America do we think that we can do things I can force my child to believe in Jesus we can't all we can do is model him, make him attractive, um, and let the Lord do what he is going to do. Hey, appreciate the call, David. Appreciate the listeners today. Be safe on the roads. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You're listening to the Word of Santa for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Day Day Edition. See you at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.